the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, Hawaii U.S. Representative Jill Takuda stopped by our studios. She's been named to the Armed Services Committee, and we'll take a tour of the Red Hill facility later this week and the health clinic that the military has set up to help its military families. She is pressing for the release of the report on the spill of the firefighting foam concentrate. Takuda says she has spent the last couple of weeks listening to communities across the state, which includes farmers. We fought hard to make sure that the committees that I was able to get on really reflected both the need and the opportunity for a congressional district, too. And so the Agriculture Committee is particularly important this year with the Farm Bill up for reauthorization. This only happens every five years. So this is a critical year to make sure we support our farmers, our ranchers, our producers. Here in Hawaii, we focus on nutrition and feeding programs for our people. So that was really important to me. And then, of course, armed services. It impacts every single island, all of our communities. So how can we balance the needs of our you know, defense posture for the Indo-Pacific with our community and our people here, right here at home? And so having those two committees was very important to me. Just the other week was also appointed to a select subcommittee focused on the coronavirus pandemic. And, you know, my focus there really is a lot of the work I did previously, as you might recall, really tracking a lot of the funds, seeing how it made an impact on people here, how we were addressing some of, you know, the disparate impacts it had on our our communities right here at home, whether you look at it from an ethnic or a geographic perspective, there's a lot of lessons to be learned. It's about making sure that when we have these conversations though in Congress, that it is balanced and it's focused, focused where it needs to be on people. And, and, and so, you know, you, you've been back home meeting with a number of different uh, groups mm-hmm. across the state. What are you hearing from, let's say, the farmers? Talk about just the salt of the earth <laughs> doing just such important, important work. And I always remind them and thank them first and foremost that so many of us got our start thanks to agriculture here in Hawaii in the plantation days, right? Four generations ago, our family came from Okinawa to work the plantation, to work on farms. And so it's a nod to our past, but more importantly, how do we support them so they can continue to do this in the future? And there's a lot of struggle right now. I did a talk story just this past weekend on Sunday with some windward side farmers here on Oahu. I'm going to talk story with farmers on Kauai, in Kona side as well. Just constant conversations we're having about how difficult it can be. You know? And there's legislation, I think, that's pending to look at how we can support our coffee farmers and our mm-hmm. magnet farmers. And the coffee industry, I know, has just been <laughs> hammered. Yeah. It's what we all thank our lucky stars we have to start the morning with is that cup of coffee. And you can't beat Hawaii-grown coffee as well. But just when you look at the infestation, the blight, the challenges they've been experiencing, it's been tough. Uh, It's been tough for all parts of our ag sector, whether it be the cost of bringing over what they need to grow our food, to support their livestock feed, all of these things, very, very expensive, the cost to do business. And so we have to remember that it is a business that they are running. How can we support our producers? so that we can actually consume, right? And, you know, we were hearing a lot about Kona Coffee, you Mm -hmm. know, and the branding and uh, practices in the marketplace that, you know, weren't really on the up and up that, Mm -hmm. you know, the coffee farmers have really had to fight. Uh, And I understand that that's now also an issue for the MacNut farmers. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it always is about preserving and protecting your brand and the integrity of your crop. And that's something that all of our specialty crops like coffee, MacNuts have had to defend. And we've got great coffee on a number of our islands, by the way, and, you know, supporting them as they establish their brand and they're able to to sell their product fairly out there on market. So I think that is absolutely, absolutely important. Uh, but especially when we look at coffee and we look at Mac nuts, just the most basic threat of can they get, you know, what's the yield going to be when they're dealing with so many different viruses, when they're dealing with so many different pest infestations. So how can we support them to grow and to produce and then be able to continue that fight by making sure that they get what's owed to them and what's fair out there in the marketplace. A lot needs to be done to be able to sustain these industries. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I recall being up in D.C. for Hawaii on the Hill yes. and what an event that is to be able mm-hmm. to showcase, you know, all of our products. But it's tough. You know, when, when you've got these different pressures on our farmers and, mm-hmm. and on their livelihood. To be a consumer is probably the easiest thing that we can do 
to support agriculture and farmers, but they need so much more help than just that. You know, just access to basic things like water, land, capital to be able to continue their, their operations, to comply with various regulations that are coming their way to keep all of us safe. When we talk about inflation and we talk about increased costs, think about all the costs borne on them to make sure that they can grow the food, they can finish off the cattle, that they can get the most out of their crop processing facilities, all of these different things, they come at a cost. And we've got to look at how we can best support them, create the infrastructure to help them so that they can produce the food, they can make a living off of this and continue to see a way forward. And we can continue to be grateful consumers. You know, we uh, saw what was happening with the egg prices. Mm -hmm. And uh, we did uh, highlight uh, what was going on on Molokai, Mm -hmm. where they are producing a lot of their own eggs which is just tremendous, thanks to, right. uh, I think, a USDA program. But, you know, you talked about the Farm Bill, and there are lots of restrictions. You know, food safety is mm-hmm. a big a big deal with the federal government, and sometimes it's really hard to translate that to the farmers that are out in the field. It is, you know, and sometimes I have heard from many farmers now as I go talk story, but over the years, you know, I mean, I cut my teeth. My very first committee, as you might recall, in the state Senate that I chaired was Agriculture and Hawaiian Affairs. And so for some time now, very familiar with the challenges and oftentimes they will will tell you that it's really rough when you look at the regulations it's really rough when you look at some of the funding programs even if you with to allocate the time and the effort to even be able to apply for some of that help. So when we look at things like the Farm Bill, when we look at supports for farmers, we also have to make sure they have the capacity and the ability to apply for it and draw it down, knowing that at the end of the day, from sunrise to sunset, they're out there doing hard work. You'll be returning to D.C. this weekend, but you'll be back and Mm -hmm. you're going to be kicking off a number of uh, town hall meetings. What's your focus there? It's about listening to people, right? And I would have loved to have done it even sooner. We've been prioritizing these last few visits on really connecting up with folks that are right there in the industries of the committees that I'm going to be serving on. So, you know, again, agriculture, our armed services, really talking and listening around those issues uh, during my last couple of visits. But starting in March, I really want to kick off community town halls, making sure I'm present on our islands, listening to people about what their concerns are, what their needs are. How are we making sure that when it comes to fighting for basic access to things like health care and mental health services, housing people can afford from young families to our kapuna, educational opportunities, child care, early childhood. I love seeing it uh, really kind of at the top of the ticket right now being promoted here in Hawaii, but there's so much we can do federally as well to jobs. Right. All of these things that help people feel that they have a shot here in Hawaii. I want to be hearing from them. What is it that we need to be really focused on, targeted on to make sure we do at the federal level, working together with our state county partners and our business and nonprofit organizations as well. And so these listening sessions are really important. It's probably the best thing. And one thing I really enjoy doing is just getting out there. And so there'll be what a, a bit of a hybrid some will be in person and online virtually? You know, absolutely. My preference is to have all of them in person. But, you know, for some we do know, too, that just given the geography and the distance to get to a lot of these meetings, can we have virtual town hall options as well? And so I'm not taking that off the table because I do feel for some the ability to tune in via Zoom or even teleconference is another avenue and way that you can connect with all of us. And that's really important. So it's not just going to be in person. It's going to be a number of different ways that we can make sure people know that they have access to me and that they've got a real voice that cares about what they want to see done in in D.C. And that'll kick off in March? Kick off in March. Okay. And then do you have an office here in Honolulu? that (laughs) (laughs) That has been a bit of a struggle, believe it or not. I think people assume that when we get into office, the federal building will have a, a nice little nook waiting for us. That is unfortunately not the case. There won't be one available probably at least for two years. So not even an option for me to be in the federal building. We have been searching for a place as much as the real estate market looks like there's a lot of availability. It's, it's been tough, but I promise I've told our team by next month, I want to have a physical place where people can go. Till then, you may see me in a lot of coffee shops and parks and everywhere possibly you can, sitting and meeting with folks out there. And so in that way, it's nice. I'm going out to people, but I'm looking forward for us having a Hawaii-based office here very, very soon. 
That was Congresswoman Jill Takuda talking with us earlier this morning. She is to tour uh, the Red Hill Underground Fuel Facility later this week as the newest member of the Armed Services Committee. Support for HPR comes from the University of Hawaii Foundation, supporting the University of Hawaii and its programs, including research in healthcare, climate resilience, and technology. Learn more at uhfoundation.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Mark Gober, author of An End to Upside Down Contact. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about research of reported interactions with UFOs, aliens, and spirits. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits committed to helping families with supportive housing, such as the Institute for Human Services. NareetHawaii.com. lawmakers introduced a number of bills aimed at raising the tax on high-end real estate deals. HPR reporter Kesey Harlow has been tracking those bills, and some have already fallen by the wayside. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, so for all of our uh, sports fans out there, I kind of like to think of uh, what happened last week as it was an internal deadline, and it was basically the play-in of a playoff game, you know, of a playoff series. And so one of the bills that uh, kind of fell by the wayside uh, is uh, Senate Bill 678. Uh, This is basically raising the state conveyance tax, which is, uh, you know, if you sell or transfer a property, uh, the state will take a little bit of a cut uh, from that sale. One-time sale is not like an annual property tax or anything like that. It's a one-time thing. Currently, our uh, conveyance tax is 2% for properties selling over $2 million, and uh, that proposal would have raised it to 6%. Uh, And so a lot of what the revenues for the conveyance tax uh, is now is uh, goes to DLNR for land preservation and also uh, for uh, affordable rental housing, uh, the revolving fund that the legislature has to support uh, affordable housing efforts. Uh, But... The significant thing about Senate Bill 678 was that it also allocated money to homeless services. So whatever uh, lawmakers wanted to uh, allocate funds to support, you know, outreach, to support uh, medical counseling services, uh, or even uh, building, you know, Kalhale or, uh, you know, supporting Ohana zones or things like that, state initiatives that would then trickle down to nonprofits and uh, so on and so forth. Uh they don't. It doesn't have a dedicated funding source. So that this bill would have allocated a dedicated funding source, a sustainable funding source, for that. However, again, that internal deadline that happened last week missed it. Missed it. <laughs> didn't happen. And uh, a lot of advocates were uh, upset because uh, the joint committees that uh, were going to hear it uh, deferred it without hearing any testimony. And so there was about a dozen people on Kauai, houseless individuals on Kauai that were waiting in the queue to testify remotely, never got the chance. And so a lot of people, uh, a lot of advocates were upset because their voices haven't been heard. But because that deadline happened, it's now all about calling that audible, right, about trying to find new ways to insert language from the now kind of stalled, deferred bill into other bills that also raise the conveyance tax And so uh, Senator Stanley Chang introduced this measure, and he also deferred it. And so this is – I asked him several questions as far as what about uh, people who may lose faith in the public process, in the legislative process, because they never got a chance to testify. And he says they should hold out hope. The legislative process is a long process. It takes months for any bill to become law. And 
we do amend bills as the process moves forward in order to take into account concerns raised by the community. So very few bills. I, I don't think I've seen a single bill that made it from you know day one all the way to passage and the governor's desk without some amendments. So what are some of the other measures uh, that deal with conveyance taxes? Uh, another measure uh, that uh, is in the Senate side is Senate Bill 362. Uh, it raises the conveyance tax but does not have any uh, funding allocated for homeless services. Another one on the House side is uh, House Bill 1211, which raises a tax and right now currently allocates roughly 10 percent of the revenues towards homeless services. And so advocates held a kind of a event on uh, over the weekend on Kauai to kind of uh, – outline, you know, next steps, what the importance of this to try to raise, raise awareness to lawmakers, and not only that, but to get those uh, houseless individuals who never had a chance to testify, you know, give them hope and give them uh, the opportunity or kind of give them the idea that, hey, we just have to keep plugging away at this. We have to keep our, we have to let our voices be yeah. heard. Keep the pressure on. Yeah, exactly. And so um, kind of looking at some of what we have as far as the state support for homeless services, uh, Kenneth Stormo Gibson is the housing policy director at the Hawaii Appleseed. And so she kind of just outlines what these bills, if there were going to be allocated uh, house homeless service uh, funds, what that would mean. I have found out that the current budget for homeless services across the state is $11 million. $11 million across the whole state. Well, this would bump it up an additional 38 and then what does it go for? Well, those funds get used for housing for structures. They get used for homeless service providers. They get used for rapid rehousing, family assessment centers, outreach workers. So I know the audio was a little bit grainy, but uh, basically it would add another $38 million or so um, to what the state currently allocates. And so she also said that the conveyance tax hasn't been uh, changed at all in the last 10 years uh, and compared it to other high cost areas such as San Francisco and Seattle, which raised their taxes, you know, quite a bit. Um, and those funds obviously will go to uh, homeless services and uh, maybe catch up to those other high cost areas as far as conveyance tax rates go. Yeah. And, and when you were talking with lawmakers, did it give a reason why we haven't changed the rate? Uh they haven't um they haven't really addressed that uh per se uh it's just it's coming about now because they feel that it's time to especially with uh the amount of um properties that are selling above 2 million dollars and obviously there was <laughs> there was like uh there was some controversy early on into these bills as well because uh it was uh going to raise taxes for over a million dollars but obviously our uh, median house uh, prices are above a million dollars. Right. Yep. Okay. Well, we'll see what comes out on the wash. But thanks so much, Casey. Thanks. We've been talking to HPR's Casey Harlow. Uh, to read more on this story, go to hawaiipublicradio.org. Your car insurance could be going up if lawmakers have their way. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Kevin Dayton joins us to talk about the bills advancing this session. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Captain. So, gosh, uh, what's in play here? Well, well, basically, for the first time in a long time, state lawmakers are considering bills that would um, require Hawaii motorists to buy more car insurance. Um, but critics in the insurance industry, strangely enough, are warning that the proposed new laws would be regressive because it could impose extra costs on low-income motorists. This essentially reopens a controversy that had quieted down for decades, but it's apparently back again. Hawaii's so-called no-fault insurance law requires all drivers to buy a minimum package of insurance, and the proposal this year is to add some additional coverage requirements to that minimum package. And you may recall that uh, lawmakers overhauled Hawaii's no-fault insurance law in the 1990s by reducing the minimum amounts of coverage that motorists are legally required to carry. At the time, the state had some of the highest insurance rates in the nation, and experts were also estimating that as many as 30% of motorists on the road were breaking the law by driving without any insurance at all. The thinking at the time was that maybe some of those people are driving without insurance because it was too expensive, 
So what they did was reduce the minimum required coverages in the hope that that would encourage more people, drop the price and encourage more people to buy insurance and comply with the law. So as part of that effort, the legislature in 97 and 1997 and 1998 reduced the minimum amount of personal injury coverage, bodily injury liability, and property damage liability coverage that everybody has to carry on their cars. People can always buy more coverage if they want to, but the legally required minimum package was reduced. Of course, that means that the people who buy the minimum, um, they then have less coverage. And that package, that minimum package, has stayed the same for the last 25 years. Yeah, that's amazing Um, to think. Two and a half decades, it's stayed the same. Two and a half decades, yeah. And, of course, we all know that that the cost of uh, auto repairs and and especially the cost of medical treatments, if you're injured in an accident, the cost has gone up incredibly in 25 years. And if you leave the minimum required coverage the same – it seems pretty clear, and, and, and we're hearing stories that it is happening, that people are getting left in the lurch because somebody hits them and then they don't have the coverage or, or adequate coverage to pay for the damages that they caused. Yeah, and your story points out that last year we had 117 traffic deaths. Exactly. So I think what's happening is, or what appears to be happening, is that more and more people are coming to the legislature and, and the trial lawyers also are jumping into this. Um, because obviously they've got an interest in this as well because they're going to represent people who are injured in accidents. And they're saying, hey, 25 years, that's too long for us to not have made changes. Um, So the lobbying effort this year is being led by the Hawaii Association for Justice, which is formerly known as the Consumer Lawyers in Hawaii. And they've been saying that package just doesn't cut it anymore, and the motorists who are getting into accidents are suffering. Interestingly enough, the Hawaii Insurance Council, which represents insurance companies, is saying is, is, is offering a word of caution here. They're saying that if you increase the minimum coverages that everybody has to take, you're in effect almost imposing a tax because these are presumably poorer people who can't afford a very you know extravagant or large insurance package. They're kind of making do with the bare minimums, but you're going to force them to pay more by increasing the minimum coverage that they have to buy. It is a bit like a regressive tax, so I can see their point, but um, it's still a little bit unclear how much impact the uh, the motorists would feel because there are at least two versions of the bills at play in the legislature right now. One of them, the, the increase in cost would be pretty minimal, maybe 80 bucks a year uh, under the proposal that is moving through the Senate. Um, another one, which is uh, much more ambitious, is which has been moving in the House, would would demand much higher limits, basically higher levels of coverage, and that one might turn out to be a lot more expensive. And are those being heard this week? Those bills, the the Senate is going to uh, Senate Consumer Protection Committee is going to consider the Senate version of the bill, which is a little bit more modest and cautious. That'll be heard on Thursday. That's just for decision making, so they'll go ahead and, and decide whether they're going to move that forward. The House bill is currently parked in the House Finance Committee. And it's not clear whether the committee is going to hear that or not. But we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. You know, you do often hear about, you know, the, the high uh, percentage of people that drive without insurance, right? And that's kind of scary, too. It is. One of the things that they think came out of those 1990s reforms is that, that the, num- the percentage of people driving without insurance is believed to have dropped from about 30 percent, perhaps. That was always a controversial number, down to about 10 percent today. So that's that's something that some the one indication that the 1990s reforms seem to work. Yeah, and then gosh, all we have to do is look at the last week and look at all the uh, you know the the fatals, pedestrian fatals, and and uh, car crashes too. So, yep, lots to think about, lots to weigh. Absolutely, and of course, if you're in an accident, the 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 damages can be just devastating. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks so much, Kev. Okay, thank you. That was reporter Kevin Dayton with today's Reality Check. Uh, To read his story on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Alliance for Progressive Action, accepting applications through March 31st for its Kuleana Academy Civic Leadership Accelerator. Information and application at hapahi.org. Aloha, I'm Bert Lum. If you're interested in science, technology, and Hawaii's innovation economy, 
Tune in to Bite Marks Cafe on Hawaii Public Radio HPR1 today at 6.30 p.m. You know, we're only two months into the new year, and we've been hearing lots about concussions in professional sports. Joining us for the long view today is our contributing editor, Neil Milner. Good morning. Hi. How's your head today? (laughs) (laughs) Stuffed with interesting things to tell the world. Uh, Thank goodness it's not down the road of the things that we're talking about here. This was an article that appeared in New Yorker magazine very recently, not certainly not coincidentally around Super Bowl time, by the science writer Ingfei Chen uh, about the history of concussion research and the politics of concussion research in athletes. And, well, more generally, uh, head injuries, because it involves more than concussion. It involves the possibilities of serious repercussions from concussions, chronic CTE. Anyway, let me just tell the story very briefly, the way uh, Ingfei Chen tells it. It's, the story, as she starts it, is about a historian named Stephen Casper. Casper did some research when he was in graduate school and wrote a dissertation sort of on the history of history of, of how uh, people were treating head injuries. This goes way back. Right, So they hire him, the, a group of hockey players who were suing the National Hockey League because they had said the hockey, that in a sense the NHL, the Hockey League, had been negligent in not warning them about the effects of uh, head injuries of, from, head from playing hockey. Mm-hmm. So this is a while back. So, they, so he, they hire him to look back at the research. What he finds, and he writes it up into a 150-page thing, is a very definitive study about how long research has been going on, certainly into the 19th century, that talked about the effects of of head of of uh, athletics uh, on and head injuries and what kind of effect it has. So what he does here as, and what the, the writer picks up on is that there is a long history of this. The history of it going through looking at punch drunk fighters, going through case studies, going through uh, doctors in the in the early 1920s and late 1920s doing research on um, on autopsies. What he finds out is two things. The first thing he finds out is there's a heck of a lot of research that shows the effect of this kind of athlete, this kind of athletic performance on head injuries, serious repercussions of head injuries. The second thing he finds, though, is as he continues this research later, is that there was a turn in about the, in the, about 1990 when the National Football League and football generally got more concerned about this. There was a turn away from this research, a turn away from this research in the sense that Pro football, with its own group of uh, experts, said this old research isn't very good because it doesn't use today's scientific standards. And you're right. It doesn't use the scientific standards that we would use then uh, because we didn't have all those things. It was case studies and so on. But the important thing here is that as one of these scientists who says, we don't know enough yet. We don't know the causal relationships because CTE, you can't really diagnose it until after a person is dead. We don't know that these that concussions cause CTE or that Repeated head things cause CT. The evidence is not irrefutable. That's what it ends up being about now. And if you remember last time when I did the thing about gun control and and the Rand Corporation, Rand Corporation uses scientific methods, and they said, look, most of the research is inconclusive. But then the Rand Corporation says, but you got to use what you got to use. That's true. <laughs> what they're saying here, what the what the NFL is saying here in this group of, is suggesting, we need more research before we can be more tentative. What uh, Casper points out is that, well, this kind of research that you want to do, 
longitudinal research, which means long-term research. That could go on for years. In the meantime, we have plenty of what he calls actionable intelligence to show that there's a relationship. So, in other words, from a purely scientific standpoint, you can't show a definitive thing, but there's all kinds of other evidence out there that seems pretty darn good, especially if you recognize case studies in all kinds of other ways. And he said, look, if you're an athletic trainer, if you're a coach, if you're a football official, you're not going to wait around for this. You've got enough evidence to go ahead and, and do it. So you, I think the important thing here, if you're a football fan or if you're a fan of keeping people's heads from getting damaged, there are two things. First of all, if you look at evidence broadly, there's enough actionable intelligence. When you talk about irrefutable evidence, you're setting a very high standard that is probably not very realistic, but you see can be used for the purposes of delaying more draconian measures to stop it. Yeah, I mean, but you can't just discount. I mean, that was the best information that we had at the time, and it's still valid. Well, it, it, absolutely. It's the best information you had at the time, and there was this tur- there was this turn away from it. What's interesting, just very briefly, think of two things. Think of the gun thing that I talked about last time where you get into this thing about how good is the science. And then the science, according to the high standards of science, we really don't know very much about uh, about this. You know, that, that it's not inconclusive. Almost nothing about gun laws is inconclusive, but you have to use it. The other thing is to go back to think about COVID. And how much of the argument was was really about something like this, although it wasn't put in this way because the COVID issue was so polarized. Follow the science, people said, who wanted you to tighten up, which is a kind of a meaningful phrase. Um, and the other side resisting it for political reasons. What you really had in COVID is science that couldn't keep up with events. Maybe partially because of incompetence, but mostly because you had to deal with the actionable intelligence you had at the moment. And if you waited around for more definitive information, let's say on on whether you could send kids back to school or whether you should have masks, you maybe couldn't have taken action then. Now, in retrospect, there are lots of people who say, well, we made a mistake there, especially about schools. But it was an example of of. What science does, how well it can do it, how nuanced it can be, but that uh, there are different ways you can use it. Well, you know, we talk a lot about what Monday morning quarterback, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, and, and we have, you know, our uh, Hawaii athletes who we care very much about and we, you know, experience all the trauma with Tua, sure. you know, when he got hit and, and we were we worried when he got sent out again. Oh, yeah. Well, Chen mentions Tua by name, but uh, Chen doesn't really discuss it. She, Chen doesn't discuss, she doesn't discuss any, any one kind of case. But if you think about, you know, worrying about your kids and he... She's very careful here not to make a stand about whether you should have football or not. As one of the scientists or one of the experts in this field said, you're not going to get rid of it because it's so much an important part of our culture. And what's also happened is that this notion of injury has become normalized. That is, people don't like it. Um, People don't like the fact, let's say, that no one likes the fact that Tua has really suffered. But if Tua says, as he says right now, I'm coming back. That seems to be a normal enough response so that it doesn't make people freak out and it doesn't make Tua freak out. I don't want to single single him out here. But, and you know, this is, a, this is an issue where the doubtfulness and the nuance of science should always be important because it's disinterested inquiry and you should always, that science always second guesses itself. But by the same token, you can't always wait for the gold standard of science to take, to take action because there's a downside and that downside is often delay. Well, you know, we just had something uh, in the headlines, a news story where we had the, the one gentleman from South Africa, uh, Mayunde, uh, yes. and, you know, tragic 
incident. You know, he was uh, shot by police. Right. You know, and then the autopsy indicated that he had CTE. You know, he was a, a you, professional you, athlete. You know what else is interesting about that? The article talks about the fact that people were talking about head injury, and the public didn't take it very seriously because the person was considered sort of marginal. Remember, the punch-drunk fighter. That's how it got said. Yeah, it's a fighter. In this case... This guy wasn't very well known. He was a rugby player. He had no history. We don't have much of a history with rugby. So no one really thought about that as a possibility until the medical examiner sent the tissue to uh, Boston, where the, by the way, one of the leading neuroscientists is a big Green Bay Packer fan. Um, and then they found that he had very advanced CTE. Yeah, all very tragic. But Thank you very much, Neil. Bring You're welcome. Take care. We have been talking to our contributing editor, Neil Milner, uh, talking about concussions. Look for links to the article cited today on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for HPR comes from Haleakala Ranch with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at HaleakalaRanch.com. Seth Uphoff dreamt of working in the legal system for a long time. There was a lot of kids I grew up with. Their parents or friends were um, prison guards. But as a prosecutor, he realized that applying the law was a little riskier. You're elected to make the tough decisions, to make the tough calls. On the next Reveal. Beginning this evening at 7, following Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from Hakawone, committed to building a neighborhood in Kaka'ako Makai where all are welcome, offering keiki and kupuna care, and including a cultural center, farmers markets, and housing options. Hakawone.com. is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Pets to pets. On this week's Mono Minute, we've got the songs, or rather the squawks, of the introduced rose ring parakeet, and that's courtesy of recordings from the Mokale Library at the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology. Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart. There are no native parrots or parakeets in Hawaii, but many species have been brought here by people over the years and have escaped into the wild to form breeding populations. Among the most abundant are rose ring parakeets. They're emerald green and measure about 16 inches from the tip of their bright red hooked bill to the end of their long pointed tail. Only the males have the black to rose colored neck ring that gives them their name. Like all birds in the parrot family, they have what's known as zygodactylous feet, where two toes point forward and two toes point back. Rosering parakeets are now considered to be the most widespread parrot in the world. They were first brought to Hawaii in the early 1960s as pets, and have since expanded to over 15,000 individuals, primarily on the islands of Kauai and Oahu. They roost together in large groups in big trees and may fly many miles to their foraging grounds. The large amounts of defecation below these trees in areas where people live is considered a health hazard. They can also be incredibly noisy when roosting. Perhaps you've heard the loud squawks of these birds when in flight or at their roost. Although highly intelligent and beautiful, they're considered to be severe agricultural pests throughout the world because they consume a huge variety of grains, fruits, and flowers. They're a particular problem for small farmers on Kauai who annually lose a large percentage of their crops to these birds. The Kauai Rose Ring Parakeet Working Group is actively searching for ways to reduce these losses and support these local farmers. Fortunately, these birds are found mostly in human-modified habitats and rarely are seen in our native forests. 
For this reason, and also because they mainly crush the seeds that they consume, they aren't considered to be effective dispersers of weeds that might compete with our native plant species, at least yet. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for HPR comes from Blues Bear Hawaii, presenting C.J. Chenier and the Red Hot Louisiana Band, February 23rd on Oahu, the 24th on Maui, and the 25th on Hawaii Island. BluesBearHawaii.com. Don't be surprised to see an Alaskan polar bear puppet pop up around Honolulu this week. It's an effort to raise awareness about climate change. Melting sea ice has forced a mother bear to leave her cubs alone in search of a safer, sustainable home. That's the story behind the seven-foot-tall puppet, which began trekking around Oahu to highlight her plight as a climate refugee. The conversation's Lillian Song was out in Waikiki and got reaction from surprise onlookers along Kalakaua Avenue. My name is Emiliano. I'm a freshman from Milani High School. Uh, I like polar bears. I think that it's messed up that they be taking their environment and stuff. We should protect the polar bears at all costs. I'm Mirko from Italy. It's fun to see something different that catches your eye while you're walking on a beautiful place like uh, Honolulu. Definitely, it's not just a piece of art. It makes you think what might be the reason behind it. Could be just to make people smile, or maybe it's a more serious cause, like global warming, you know, the, the weather changing, the impact that uh, it has on uh, species like them. Ultimately, us and next generations like uh, my daughters here. My name is Khan. I'm originally from Europe, from Belgium, but I've actually been living here for 17 years. Hawaii is an environmental place, so I would think that having a polar bear here, it's kind of strange in a way because Hawaii doesn't necessarily have, obviously polar bears doesn't have them, but nonetheless it is a very good symbol that I think everybody can recognize for the environment. My name is Konatsu. I'm from Japan. At first, I was really surprised. I thought it's uh, one of the YouTubers even. <laughs> but maybe most people think when they see the polar bear in Hawaii, wow, it's really strange to see the polar bear in Hawaii. But I think it's a really good idea to promote, motivate people to make people think about the environment and uh, our motivation to support some activity to protect the environment. So I'm uh, happy. Yeah, I'm glad to see her. Yeah. We are from Indianapolis, Indiana. Winter. Cold snow. It was like 20 degrees. It was snowing day. on Friday. Yeah. Eight. Yeah. What was your reaction to so we saw her walking down the street and the mechanics, the blinking eyes and the mouth. And that was very cool. And the cloth that she's made of, it was very pretty. It was interesting. It was very cool. Uh, my name is Concerned Citizen. I live here. To me, it's like art. Someone's trying to make a statement of something. Probably extremist climatic response. Now, here we go. I also want to get unobstructed video of this. This is pretty cool. So whoever's doing this, you know, I mean, I'm sure they got their heart in it. You have to, right? <laughs> well, visual storyteller and designer Kathleen Doyle is the creative mind behind the polar bear puppet named Kwanuk Nanuk. Its name means snowflake in the indigenous language of the Yuptic tribe. Doyle spoke with Lillian Song about the project, which began almost three years ago to the day for the American Museum of Natural History's International Polar Bear Day. What's so fun about this project for me is that as a theater maker and puppet designer, costume designer, like a theater maker, it's really exciting to create this kind of pop-up event. It's a theatrical event, but it's outside of the proscenium and it's interacting with folks who didn't intentionally go to the theater that day. But it's really 
I don't know. It just really reminds me of like the power of theatricality, the power of puppets, the power of spectacle to connect us and to approach each other peacefully, to find this common ground that we all find like some kind of delight and curiosity in. And it's short. You know, it's not like we're asking someone to come to a three-hour opera. So that, from a theater maker perspective, that's super satisfying and, and exciting. Mm. You're just very much in the moment. You didn't know who was going to be in Waikiki. Right, right. Just some highlights. What was it you were saying that your wrangler mentioned some surfers? Mm-hmm. What was that about? So a friend of mine from Honolulu Theater for Youth, who also I brought out to New York to the American Museum of Natural History because she acted in my show out there. So it's, it's, life is so funny how we're all connected. And she said, let me wrangle for you today. And so she was walking with us, and I couldn't tell what was going on because I was in the rear legs of the beer. Later, she told me, there's all these cool surfer dudes, local kids, and I saw them put down their boards and like approach us and like leave the beach and leave the sand and come out to the sidewalk. And I just laughed like, no, that's high praise. <laughs> and she said, I know, because, you know, I thought they would be too cool for school. And they just kept watching quietly. And then finally they asked her, hey, is it OK, you know, if we had a picture? And I thought, okay, okay, that makes me happy because it's one thing for, you know, moms and dads to say, can we pull our stroller up next to the bear? But it's different for cool teenagers, you know, to put down their surfboards and come to over. To walk away from the waves for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And to come hang with you guys. <laughs> yeah. Right. Mm. And it's also connected, you know, the, the waves. And she's the sea bear. So... That that was encouraging. Yeah. Well, this is wonderful, Kathleen. If anything, it feels like Hawaii is just one of the many chapters for Snowflake as, you know, you have just created a, a beautiful, gentle character to raise awareness of the plight of the polar bear. And at the same time, not only educating, but also bringing joy. I have to say, as I was following you, so many people were just smiling and you know, stopping to pause from what they were doing on Kalakaua to wonder. I'm sure you really planted many seeds of polar bear in Waikiki. Hmm. What's that about? Well, Kwanuk Nanuk is a polar bear creation. And in this world, she has become a climate refugee due to the climate crisis and melting sea ice and what melting sea ice means for polar bear populations. So she is in a desperate situation to find food and to stay alive. So she has abandoned her baby cubs in a desperate search for a sustainable climate. And she is searching throughout this country. And she's somehow swum all the way down here to Hawaii, to the Pacific Ocean. And she has arrived. This is not an ideal climate for polar bears, but at the moment there is not an ideal climate for polar bears. But she's receiving a warm welcome. We are hoping to visit many beautiful, incongruous locations for polar bears. And that includes this morning our first jaunt through Waikiki Beach. We'll go to the botanical gardens. We've been invited to the Hawaii State Art Museum, Hi Sam. To the State House, Representative Lisa Martin reached out. Hanama Bay is on our list. We'd like to go to the North Shore. We would like to kind of visualize the narrative that she has swum here, washed up on these beautiful beaches, ambled her way through the greens and the hibiscus and this beautiful but chaotic environment for her, and then landed in the cityscape of Honolulu and Waikiki and greater Oahu. This project is underway going on until the 25th, so into the weekend. Mm -hmm. And if people do happen to see this seven-foot mm -hmm. polar bear ambling through the streets, that message that you really want to underscore. 
here's an animal, a climate refugee of a different species than our own, but equally worthy of our compassion and our concern, our care, and our urgent attention. And she, by her very presence, is is reaching out to us, is gently pleading to us by her simply by her presence that she's in need and animals like her are tragically you know affected by the climate crisis Mm. it's been about five years really just since i've been here last and i'm hoping to to interact with local folks and share something I've came so far, and you know it was is a very exciting and beautiful effort to figure out how to get here. And the Puffin Foundation sponsored me to come here with a grant. So I also have such like warmth for the Hawaiian people that I have met, and certainly my colleagues at HTY, Honolulu Theater for Youth. So I want to share this idea with school kids, with random folks on the street, with the folks at the state house, at museums, at the beaches, wherever people might gather and have have a moment. I don't want to interrupt anyone's work day, you know, but have a moment to smile. And, you know, hopefully the project is whimsical and joyful and hopeful and not threatening or scary or depressing, but that it just encourages some some love. That was Kathleen Doyle talking with HBR's Lillian Song about a pop-up polar bear puppet, a climate change refugee that is on a mission to raise awareness about global warming. We'll have photos and links on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. go now but tomorrow we survey the landscape for architects leave your feedback on our talkback line 808-792-8217 or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org find our archive shows online by searching for the conversation podcast on our website or on spotify or apple i'm katherine cruz join us tomorrow for more of the conversation 